I'm certainly excited about the next few minutes of the morning show because I have the privilege of speaking with a very gifted wordsmith by the name of Mary Norris. She has worked for one of my favorite uh, magazines, The New Yorker, for decades and uh, has just written a memoir of sorts called Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen in which Mary Norris talks about the work which she has done at The New Yorker, primarily as a copy editor, but she has done uh, other work there as well. And uh, mostly looking at the words written by others and sorting out the errors, uh, working for greater clarity and so on. And of course, if she has done that, it has been a great adventure for her to come to understand the beauty and the vagaries of the English language, uh, far greater than most of us actually fully appreciate or understand. And uh, if for anyone who loves language and wants to know more about it and wants to use it more effectively, this book is a wonderful and entertaining place to start. Again, it's called Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen, published by W.W. W. Norton & Company. And Mary Norris, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you. That was a lovely introduction. Thank you very much. I apologize <laughs> for the sound of New York in the background. <laughs> That's all right. I'm, I'm glad to be speaking with you. I wonder if you could say a word about a, an entertaining portion at the front of the book in which you talk about some of the earliest part-time jobs which you had, which none of which would seem to directly point towards the work which you are ultimately so well known for at the New Yorker magazine. Just uh, list those off for our listeners and maybe say a word about uh, how in maybe some surprising ways there, is actually, there actually is a hint of uh, what was to come. <laughs> well, some people have suggested that my first job, which was checking seats at a public pool in Cleveland, to make sure that people didn't have athlete's foot before they entered the pool, that that was a way of rooting out error, which <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of before. Uh, mainly my checkered career before I got to the New Yorker was all about financial independence. You know, I would do anything to make money. Um, that's not completely true. <laughs> but I was... Uh, I was when I was determined to get a job, I got a job. It was easier for me usually in my hometown than anywhere else in Cleveland. Um, but that first job, I was 15 and a half. I checked feet at the pool. Later, after I graduated from college and went back to Cleveland between college and graduate school, I worked in a costume company. And then I had the best job of my life, which was driving a milk truck in Cleveland. I had my own milk route. I did crash the truck early on, but they let me keep the job. And uh, then in graduate school, I after I finished my coursework, I worked in a cheese factory, packaging cheese. I was interested in the dairy industry. And really, that's the, the association between that job, my jobs in the dairy industry, and my job at the New Yorker. These were jobs that when I went to interview for, I really, really, really wanted. And so I didn't have to put up any front. I could be honest in the interview, and I got the jobs. <laughs> and the rest right. is, uh, is, a, is a sort of history, I suppose. Uh, you write this uh, towards the beginning of the book. Uh, it has been uh, more than 20 years since I became a page okayer a position that exists only at the New York Times. 
well, a New Yorker. At the New Yorker. Sorry, yes. at the New Yorker, mm-hmm. where you query proofread pieces and manage them with the editor, the author, a fact checker, and a second proofreader until they go to press. One of the things you write, I like about my job, is that it draws on the entire person. I think a lot of people looking at the job of, of a editor or proofreader would not see that to be true. It seems like a highly focused kind of position that draws upon a very focused kind of expertise. Tell us why you see it differently, that you see it as the kind of work that draws upon the whole person and, and a, a plethora of skills and gifts. Well, um, when I first started out, I was on the copy desk, which was the first layer of... Um, changes that went on to a piece when it went into print, and that was just spelling and and putting New Yorker style on words and a little bit of punctuation. But as I moved up to page okaying, that involves um, you get to use your own sensibility more when you're working on somebody's um, prose. Which means that you can you know you can suggest changes to sentence structure, and you can. You can question sometimes facts in it. I'm not a fact checker, but um, sometimes something sneaks through. My One of my proudest moments was I once caught a mistake in Middle English because I had studied Chaucer, and I knew that when used to be spelt W-H-A-N in the Middle Ages, <laughs> and that was kind of an amazing use of my um, higher education that had had no use. <laughs> I had had no really practical use for up till then. <laughs> so what I, what I mean is just that you can, in fiction, if somebody, if a character is visiting Cleveland and drives the wrong way from the airport, you, you know you know that because you've lived in Cleveland. So all of your personal experience can be brought to bear on the things that you read to save the author from a mistake. Hmm. On the other hand, you you point out uh, that there's also, in a sense, a line, not that it's a fixed line that never moves or that it's always the same line in, in, in every instance, but there is at least theoretically some line that uh, that some that someone in your position should not cross. And you... you uh, Coin a, or you 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 tell us about a, a very fancy word I've never seen or heard before, which talks about going beyond your province, uh, e- exceeding in a sense your authority or your expertise. Maybe um, tell us about that that word and about that that principle uh, to which you also have to adhere. Well, the word is ultra crepidate. Right. <laughs> Ultra crepidation, which is, um, it does mean creeping beyond your station. And that would be, for instance, if um, the word first came up when I was reading a piece by John McPhee, and it was about writing and being edited, and the word, in fact, was in um, was in a passage that was about the hate the page okayers at the New Yorker, and he wrote that um, occasionally one of them goes beyond her station and suggests something that is out of the ordinary. For what he was talking about was um, I had let him know that people from Manchester are called Mancusians. And that, uh, well, the second proofreader on that piece suggested that when McPhee wrote going beyond their station that he changed it to ultra-crepidate. 
Mm. And that's a perfect example of somebody going beyond his station. McPhee <laughs> would love the word ultra crepidate, but he wouldn't want it to appear in his own prose unless he had chosen it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> and to suggest that he change, go beyond her station to ultra crepidate would have been ultra crepidation. You know? mm. <laughs> it's been going beyond my uh, station. Right. I think a lot of people would uh, would assume that a lot of the work you do is is limited to being kind of a fancy human spell checker, which uh, for, of course, a lot of people feels like something maybe relatively superfluous given the fact that we all type on word processors and computers now that correct our spelling for us. I think you really uh, are persuasive as you talk about that kind of technology and uh, the way in which you uh, have some concerns with at least certain facets of it. Not that you would, I think, I think you don't turn off the spell checker, but there are other kinds of technology supposedly to aid us in our writing that you have a real problem with. Uh, can you say a word about that? Well, sub the autocorrect function on my phone drives me crazy. You know, if you make a little typo, it makes a whole new word for you. It doesn't understand any nuances. It doesn't understand attempts at foreign languages. And it it can completely pervert the sense of what you're saying. And the, re- the reason that the spell check is not the final word is that it does not ha- it doesn't recognize the context of what it what the word is in. And there are so many words that are homophones that um, sound the same but look different. One of the, the ones that I wrote about is flower f l o w e r and flower f l o u r. That was the making of my career in the beginning. I was able I found a. a flower spelt wrong just before a piece went to print and it's what brought me to the notice of some of the editors at the New Yorker and made made them eventually trust me to proofread. Um, But that's what it's missing. It's missing context and it's missing the nuance that uh, a human reader can bring to something. It's not just about the spelling, it's about having a first reader, too. That's very good for a writer to have somebody read and vet a piece before it's put into print and set out into the world. Hmm. By the way, I so enjoyed not only all of that's in your book about I mean, how to use commas properly, how to use apostrophes correctly, more about the background of, of uh, dictionaries being uh, created and, and, and different sort of principles behind them. But I also loved the way in which you take us inside a lot of the work which you have done at the, at the New Yorker. In particular, I found fascinating uh, when you talked about the work of a collator. And of course, a collator at a place like the New Yorker, that is, uh, you're using that term differently than I think most of us think of it as just the simple assemblage of pages and then you staple them all together and there you go. This is something a bit more sophisticated and fascinating work uh, in in which all kinds of things come together. Just say a quick word about the fascinating work of a collator at the New Yorker. Well, that was a job that no longer exists as a department at the New Yorker, but it was in, in an office where we got the proofs from all the different departments on a, an author's work, we got the author's proof in, 
himself. We got a proof from the fact checker. We got the editor's proof, and we got a proof from the legal department, and we got the proofreader's proofs, usually two of them. And it was the job of the collator with a pencil on paper <laughs> to put all of those changes on a single proof for the printing plant. And then the printing plant had to decipher your handwriting and make the changes and send it back again. We're still doing that, but on a more sophisticated level. It used to be kind of a medieval job where you actually wrote by hand on a proof. And now those changes are all put onto an electronic file. And, and we do, at the end, we keep a paper trail. We still have what we call a reader's proof that has all the changes marked in pencil so that the next layer of proofreader can compare the two. They can compare the, the marks that we wanted with the things that went onto the proof. And the difference here is that the okayer <coughs> is now the typesetter as well because you're making the changes yourself on the electronic file. Hmm. You write at one point, when I finally made it to the copy desk, it was a long time before I could once again read for pleasure. I spontaneously copy-edited everything I laid eyes on. <laughs> I find that to be a really fascinating observation. It's probably akin to somebody like me who is, uh, I am a music professor in my other life, and, uh, and, and in some ways you, you sit and listen to a piece of music and you don't do so for, for pure pleasure. Uh, it, it's hard not to do so without analyzing it on some level, which in itself I suppose can be kind of a pleasurable thing. But I wonder... Uh, to what extent have you been able to move past that that tendency? Is that a tendency that's still with you today to copy edit every single thing that 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 uh, your eyes uh, that you lay eyes on? Fortunately, no. <clears throat> I am now able to read for pleasure again. I, that lasted a couple of years when I was just so worried about my job that I was uh, practicing on everything that I saw. I guess. But after a few years, I was once again able to read for pleasure, and I can still read for pleasure. I'm not saying that I don't notice typographical errors and that I don't wonder about certain um, decisions in punctuation, but they don't distract me from the pleasure of reading anymore. Hmm. I, I don't know how it happened, but I'm really glad it happened. And I, Maybe it's a matter of just um, being off-duty. I can tell when I'm off-duty, and I can enjoy you know, reading a book before I go to bed, and if there's a typo in it, I don't mind. I don't correct it. I don't write a letter to the editor <laughs> or the publisher or the author. You know, I just let it go. Everyone makes mistakes. Very good. Well, it's a fascinating book, start to finish. I enjoyed it so much and uh, came away with a, a newfound appreciation, for instance, for the editor of the Journal of Singing, for, for which I write a a, uh, a column, and uh, I, I suddenly find myself with a profound appreciation for the scrupulous editing, which our editor-in-chief does, uh, not only with what I submit, but everybody else and all that they submit. And, uh, and of course, everything that we take in hand that has been carefully shepherded to our hands by uh, editors, sometimes many editors, uh, that is work largely invisible to the rest of us, uh, and your book helps us to appreciate that important work. And it's a lot of fun well, besides. So the book is Between you. you and Me, Confessions of a Comic Queen by W.W. W. Norton. Mary Norse, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.